In the last installation of Brand Protection 101, we are going to specifically look at patents. Now, patents are very distinct because of what exactly they cover and of how they even became to be something in America alone. This is Brand Protection 101 Patent Law, and this is The Label Law. Hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning back in. I know I've been taking a break. I'm actually getting ready to start my whole law school process, so it's been a lot of stuff going on, but I have been working behind the scenes, of course, trying to get this episode and future episodes done before I have to end this series for this month of September. So we're going to dive deep into patenting and what exactly patenting is. And when you want to talk about patents, sometimes it can get a little confusing because there are multiple different types of patents. There are utility patents, there's design patents, there's scientific patents, there's so many different styles of patenting. But we're specifically going to be talking about it in the fashion industry and in the world of designing. Now, the other day I took to Instagram and I posted the patent for Jordan 6s, which is one of my favorite pair of Jordans, and it distinctly showed multiple different aspects of the patent of the shoe. It talked about not only the configuration of the shoe, but also the different styles of patterns, patterns that they use on the shoe, the fabric that they use, multiple different things, and all of those aspects are very distinct and crucial to patenting and design and making sure that your design is patentable. <laughs> so we're going to go into the de definition of what a patent is. And I want to go into the different styles of patenting as well, just so you can see how it parallels to design patents specifically. So utility patents are a type of patent that are granted to anyone who invents or discovers any new and useful process, machine, article of manufacture, or a composition of matter or any new and useful improvement thereof. So when you think of utility patents, you're thinking of inventions. So an example would be like in science, when they come up with a new way to, you know, look into, let's say, for example, ultrasound, that's something that's patented. Now, with plant patents, which is a newer one, it's granted to anyone who invents or discovers and asexually reproduces any distinct and new variety of plant. Now, broccoli and cauliflower are two of my favorite favorite vegetables of all time i tried to go vegan for a little bit so i was using cauliflower for a lot of stuff and that's literally why it's one of my favorites but beyond that broccoli and cauliflower are actually not real vegetables they're real in the sense that of course you can eat them but they're not natural there's something that was made in a lab and that is a plant a plant patent so really cool there and now into design patents design patents actually have the longest definition out of all of these and i think because of the fact that at the end of the day design patenting kind of puts the culmination of both utility and the way that plant patents work together 
So design patents may be granted to anyone who invents a new original and ornamental design for an article of manufacture. They're most commonly relief upon fashion. So it's mostly about the fashion industry when we go into design patents, but it can go into other aspects of the world, of course. So some more recently issued design patents are um, Christian Louboutin's specific Azumat leather lace-up ankle boots. Very cute. Um, Manovra's 70 studded leather and PVC slingback pumps. So a lot of people think that those PVC pumps are just something that, oh, you can get from Public Desire or you can get it from here. But they're actually patented by Manovra. And the one that we're specifically going to go into today is the Rocco bag by Alexander Wang. Now, this bag, first, let me just say that Alexander Wang is one of my favorite designers. Um... I just love his story as being, a, you know, the child of immigrants and moving all the way across the country against his parents' wishes to go to design school. And while he was in design school, realized that, you know, his art, his talent, he didn't really have to stay and entered into a sweepstakes or I guess you could say competition with Vogue at the time and ended up winning the competition and won $20,000 to start what Alexander Wang is today. So personally, I love Alexander Wang. And the Rocco bag is very distinct. Its structure is like known by a lot of people in the fashion world. When you think of the Rocco bag, it's a very, like, I don't want to give it a specific shape. And that's what's crazy about it, because that's what's mostly patentable about it. But it has a pebble-like structure on the outside. It's very, if you want to compare it to a shape, is very cylinder, but still has these studs at the bottom that give it a hard bottom shape. And that is one of the reasons that he was able to patent it because of the fact that you can't even come up with a shape name really in order to, you know, describe the bag. It's a very distinct, different type of bag. And you can even see different people like Stella McCartney who have bags that look similar, but their bag is very distinct away from the Alexander Wang bag. And how he was able to patent this is by going to the United States Patent and Trademark Office. And that is another aspect of patenting and trademarking that I talked about in the last episode that is very crucial in getting your design protected. So I'm just going to give a more in-depth history of the United States Patent and Trademark Office than I did in the last episode. It's one of the most unique federal agencies because it operates solely off of fees collected by its users and not actual taxpayer dollars. So stop right there. In order for you to patent something, trademark something, there is a fee that comes with it. Now, I personally do not remember what the exact number is, but I know that there's a fee and to some it may be a little high for some it may be not that high depending on where your brand is or what you're patenting where you are at with the situation but it started back in the 1700s I believe with actually a patent that had nothing to do with the fashion industry on July 31st 1790 the first ever U.S. patent was issued to Samuel Hopkins and it was for the improvement of making pot ash and pearl ash by a new apparatus and process this patent was signed by then President George Washington so now you see how far this patenting and trademarking has really gone in U.S. history, let alone in the whole entire world. Now, the U.S. Patent Office is a part of a tri-patent office with Japan and Europe, hint, hint, two of the 
highest fashion industry players in the world. Coincidence? I don't think so. And they make a patent cooperation treaty in order for your patent to not only be respected in the U.S., but also in Europe and in Japan. And so stuff like this is like really cool for the fashion industry just because you think, okay, maybe if someone in, honestly, let's say China, (laughs) sees something from America and wants to steal it, which honestly we see a lot that Chinese, just the fashion industry, everything, a lot of things are counterfeited from that country in another country like japan or in another country like london that's not possible because of these this trilateral patent office that is made in order to protect specifically design patents if we're going to talk about this but even patents with other things like the plant and the utility patents now specifically what is patent law patent law is a form of intellectual property law Duh. But it is designed to encourage inventors to disclose their inventions and technology for the purpose of promoting the common good by offering the incentive of a limited time monopoly on such technology. Now, that monopoly part is very, very, very important. The fact that you have a monopoly over this technology, a monopoly, if you don't know what that is, is basically you are the sole provider of a service uh, a product like anything like let's say disney plus owned every single channel on tv that would be a monopoly of you know entertainment tv but in the specific and you know that's actually illegal but in this specific instance it's not because it's the invention of something brand new and there are things that require something to be patentable and there are five primary requirements the patentals the patentable sorry y'all you know english is not my first language the patentable subject matter requirement speaks to the type of inventions that will be considered for patent protection and the categories for patentable subject matter are broadly devi- defined as what i said earlier any process machine manufacture or composition of matter important thereof and it's the supreme court has noted this in diamond versus Chik- Carbardi, if I'm saying that correctly, stating that Congress intended patentable subject matter to include anything under the sun that is made by man. So let's say today you make some new way to fry chicken. I don't know why fried chicken just came to my mind. I'm clearly hungry, but let's say you come up with some new way to fry chicken that is not in, you know, regular deep fry or in the air fryer. You could patent that process. You could patent that to where you're the sole person who, if you're going to buy this or you're going to license it to sell a product that uses this invention, you have to give some type of proceeds to me or you have to pay me for that licensing. The Patent Act also provides the following definitions of anything else. So the process is defined by the law as a process, act, or method, and primarily includes industrial or technical processes. Manufacturing refers to the articles that are made and includes all manufactured articles and composition of matter relates to chemical compositions and may include mixtures of ingredients as well as new chemical compounds. So like if we're going to talk about Alexander Wang, other than the Rocco bag in his last, I want to say, um, runway in new york fashion week he came out with this bag that was made all of goat fur but the actual composition of the bag was something that i've never seen now i haven't gone to actually look and see if that's patented yet but i'm actually sure that even if it's not patented now it could be patented later and i'm sorry i'm only using alexander wang references 
I just love him that much. And um, another aspect of the patent to make it a requirement is the invention must be useful. So this can't be something that like, you know, only you could use or, you know, it's just like, oh, wow, you made something new. Like, that's cool. Like, no, it's something that has to be useful for the broad majority of people. The invention also must be novel or new. So the novelty requirement states that an invention cannot be patented if certain public disclosures of the invention have been made. And so that means the invention was known to the public before the applicant filed for a patent protection. The invention was described in a printed publication before the applicant filed for patent protection or the invention was described in a published patent application or issued patent that was filed before the applicant filed for patent protection. So in the USPTO office, they actually have a website online where you can Google, I guess, search through different patents and trademarks to make sure that, you know, what you're coming out with is new because you don't, even though the office will not provide you with your trademark or in this specific case patent if they know that there's something in the past you would have just wasted a lot of time and a lot of money trying to patent something that has already been patented because at the end of the day their service is that not only are they looking to make sure it's not patented they're also making sure that it can be patented so that's their service fee they're not giving it back to you if they tell you oh yeah no you know it's already patented. Sorry. Like, no, you already gave them your money. So you're wasting your time if you don't go through that log to make sure. And the invention must be non-obvious. So this cannot be something that, you know, my four-year-old could randomly one day say, hey, oh, I don't have a four-year-old, by the way, (laughs) but that your four-year-old could be like, hey, mom, I just, you know, made this blah, blah, blah. And it's like, wait, you just made that for free and somebody is selling that invention in the store for X amount of dollars. It can't go that way. It it just can't. It's not possible. It's it's not legal and it will not be covered by patent law. So we're going to go back into that monopoly aspect. That monopoly aspect basically ensures that the patent holder has the right to exclude others from making, using, or selling the invention throughout the United States, as well as the right to prevent others from importing the invention into the United States. That's where the trilateral patent officing comes into play because it's going to be checked (laughs) in multiple different aspects. It's going to be checked before it even gets through importation. So it's really cool how deep patenting can go because it's like for the example of last week when I talked about the Christian Louboutin red soul and YSL like let's say that Christian Louboutin was some you know up and coming designer that patented it in the US and YSL was some French house that was also up and coming and they wanted to import it because they had some stores in the US that they wanted to sell it at U.S. Customs, it would be X'd out because it wouldn't be allowed. Or even at U.S. Customs, if it was able to go through, it would definitely be stopped and flagged because of that specific situation. And as a result of such rights, a patent owner may give permission to or license basically other parties to use the invention. So licensing is something that needs its own episode. Personally, I believe licensing needs its own episode. Specifically right now, an example of licensing that unfortunately went against the artist issues is Basquiat. He said during his time that he did not want anyone to license his art for anything. So yes, while we love the Basquiat photos on t-shirts, we love the Basquiat, you know, on coats, purses at the current time, 
those are going against Basquiat's wishes. And his father actually went with his wishes and made sure during his time period that they wouldn't be licensed. But when his father died, now his sisters and mothers do not listen to his wishes. And this is something that licensing has to do with the fashion industry, which is a major, major, major aspect of the fashion industry and will probably be one of my first episodes after I restart this series. Because guys, after the next episode, I will be taking a break. It's not really a break per se, but it's just a series ender I really just have to take some time to honestly live. (laughs) I got a full-time job now. I'm applying for law school. There's just a lot of things going on in my life right now. And even my emotional and mental health, I just need a break. I need to relax. I need to do what I need to do to relax for me. But thankfully, I have a few episodes recorded before the end of this series. Next week, I'll be having a conversation with Autumn Nash. She is a graduate from Fordham Law School with a Master in Legal Studies. She interned with Jeremy Scott, and she just is going to talk about her time there being in the fashion law industry as a Black woman and what it was like having those firsthand experiences. As always, thank you guys for tuning in, and this is The Label Law. Crack kills, not crack, not crack, yeah.